next Sunday. And then the following Sunday, Lord's willing, uh, we'll pick up a chapter 3. Chapter 2, this epistle written by the Apostle Peter to saints scattered throughout various areas, primarily of Asia. Paul primarily was an apostle to the Gentiles and went westward uh, from Jerusalem. The Apostle Peter went in an eastward direction according to most reliable history. Peter, if he ever was in Rome, just passed through. Uh, he was never a pastor in Rome. He's writing now to those people many years after he had been with them. He writes this epistle back to them. and We are looking at this in the second chapter. We concluded last week in verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations or troubles, problems, and to reserve the unjust unto day of judgment to be punished. Brother David said, there is a day of judgment. The Lord warns that we should be prepared, be aware of coming judgment. He told us in the book of Matthew that judgment would come quickly as it was in the days of Noah when people were unexpected, unprepared. Only Noah and his family who were in the ark that God had given to them, prepared for them, only they were saved out of the whole world that perished. So the Lord is a God of severe judgment. And that's the next thing you note here in this second epistle and the second chapter. The severity, not only the certainty of it, but the severity of God's judgment. You'll note in verse 4 we talked about the angels that said not. We also noted Sodom and Gomorrah were overthrown by fire. Then he gives a, a broad generalization of ungodly conduct, beginning at verse 10. But chiefly, and the word chiefly means primarily, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanliness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, and they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Now, the reason why it is such a terrible sin for people to be rebellious toward government, and I'm talking about good government, government that's established by God, of course. It is established by God. It is because of that very reason. It is established by God. Paul, Peter, both, all the early New Testament church, was living in the Roman Empire, which was a very cruel, harsh government. Many things were wrong with that government. But yet, Paul will tell you that we are to obey the ordinances of man. Peter will tell you the same thing. Now, there are indeed reasons why at times that we are disobedient or we violate those laws. When the government tries to impose an unholy or an ungodly law, if the government were to tell us that we had to commit murder to kill our babies, for instance, you have that back in the book of Exodus when Pharaoh told 
the midwives, the Jewish midwives, that they were to kill all the firstborn babies. Uh, they didn't do that because it was murder. Abortion is murder. And if there were requirements in any way forced upon us whereby that we were expected to commit murder by killing our children, and then that would be wrong. Or any kind of murder would be wrong. It is also that the Bible sets forth a, a biblical marriage relationship. A man and a woman. Biological man and a biological woman. It's a shame I have to say that in this day and age. I guess I also need to inform our government officials because I'm told and observed that when in one of the Senate hearings, when one of the government officials was asked to give a definition of what a woman is, he could not do it, or she could not do it. I forgot exactly which one it was, but it seems like that five-year-old, six-year-old children would know that there is a difference between a male and a female. Well, I'm not going to tarry on that, but I'm just pointing out that governments are to be obeyed, government laws are to be obeyed, and those who are rebellious are rebelling against God unless there is a God-sanctioned, God-given, God-approved reason for doing that. For instance, if our government said we couldn't meet to meet as a church or they tried to shut down what we preach and believe, then we would have reason to disobey the government. But we do that, as Peter and John said, we must obey God first and then the government. Verse 11, he says, that whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not reeling accusation against them before the Lord. Angels themselves don't dare to bring accusations against governments before God. And yet we have rioters and gangs roving throughout the world, violating the laws that God has put in place by government. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Indeed, that is true, obvious. Sinful, wicked lives lead to early deaths. You'll read sometimes about various people whose lives, they die at early age, and you wonder what happened? What was their illness? Was it a cancer? Usually it's a lot of them are drugs involved, alcohol involved. Wicked lives will shorten your life. And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Now there's a lot of diverse ideas about what that phrase right there means. Uh, some translators have changed the words that while they're enjoying the good life with you. But the Greek words won't hold to that. The Greek words is while they are feasting with you. Uh, which will tell you that importance of, first of all, that we are being mindful that everyone who professes to be a Christian, everyone who wants to get baptized, as Brother David read about John the Baptist when those Pharisees and Sadducees came and 
He wanted to join the crowd because that's what everybody was doing. That was the thing to do. Get baptized by John the Baptist. And so there were a lot wanting to do that. John, with spiritual discernment, knew that there were false professors. And who have warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit, first of all, evidence. Well, that's a good pattern to go by. And so there are people even today in all times that want to join the religious order. Various re religious orders take people in with very few requirements. But a New Testament church is to examine, be sh to the best of their ability, that a person has indeed been born again. It is a prerequisite from church membership, regardless of who your parents may be and so forth, that you must have been one who has experienced regeneration. That's the prerequisite for, New Testament, for membership in New Testament church. But there are those who make false professors, false professions, who even get baptized, make a good show for a while of, of being one of the Lord's people. Remember, the first church, there was one Judas who was never a born-again person. The Lord knew who he was. He was there for a definite purpose, ordained by God to be the very deceiver who would betray the Lord and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. But that gives us some indication that even the very best of churches, uh, there is a potential always for false professors. We are indeed instructed then that we are to guard the Lord's table. The book of First Peter, and not First Corinthians, I'm sorry, Paul writing to us gives us some instructions about how that we are to guard the Lord's table. The Bible teaches that the Lord's table is to be guarded by the Lord's church. It is not the preacher's responsibility. No man has that individual responsibility, no pope, no bishop, but rather this is the responsibility of the whole church. And here is the pattern the Lord Paul gives us to us in the fifth chapter of First Corinthians. He says, I wrote unto you, I'm reading at verse 9. Well, I started, let's back it up and read verse 7. That would be a good place to start. First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. Not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Now you note, he's not talking about drunkenness and immorality here initially, but things that are more easily common with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators. Immoral people, their lives, you're not to company with them. The word company means to be in a close relationship. Uh, now, you cannot walking down the street tell who is a fornicator and who's not. But what Paul here is talking about is church relationship. This epistle is written to the church the saints of God at Corinth. And so what you're reading is responsibility and how we as church members are to conduct a, not to company. Now someone comes in and visits here and they attend here for a while. 
you don't know whether, unless there's some reason for knowing it, but generally you wouldn't know their moral life. But as it might become obvious, you know, a person is a lesbian, a person is a homosexual, a person is living in an immoral relationship, not to company with such a one. Verse 10. Now he's, yet not altogether with the fornicators of the world, not only those who are outside in the world, and with the, and here's the word, covetous. Now, I'm going to talk more about this word, covetous, more. And I told my wife today that it's going to be a hard subject for me to talk about. Not because I feel so guilty, although I could very well be guilty, and not that I think that you are guilty. I've never really preached on this subject as such, just mentioned a lot of times, and we do. But I think I can show you why I'm bringing this subject to you from the Word of God. Not with the covetous of it or extortioners or with idolaters, for then you must needs go out of the world. You cannot totally avoid some contaminant, some contact with these kind of people, whether you want to or not. Your work, people who live next door to you, or your community, your own family members, maybe. You can be careful of your relationship with them. You certainly should not marry one of these kind of people. But what I want you to note here particularly, as we start this, this subject this morning, I want you to note the context in which the word covetous is mentioned. The context. Amongst those who are extortioners, fornicators, idolaters. That word is mentioned among those sins. Now verse 11. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother or a sister, person that professes to be a child of God, church member, preacher, makes no difference. A brother be a fornicator or covetous. There that word is again. And note the context. Or an idolater or a riler, that's a fighter or a drunkard, or an extortion. Now note this line, with such a one, know not to eat. Now he's not talking about sitting down at McDonald's and having a hamburger, or he's not talking about you're sitting at a, at a restaurant somewhere, that, or even maybe in your own home. Now there will be reasons why you need to be careful who you might have into your home, but that's not the relationship he's talking about. This is talking about the Lord's church and the Lord's supper. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. I hear oftentimes when you get talking about church discipline or godly living, people say, well, we ought not judge people. Well, you do every day. You do every day, in maybe an unconscious way. But it is 
simply a matter of good discernment. I imagine all of you have got a bank account somewhere or another, some bank. I imagine you'd be very careful where you put your savings and put your money. There's some people, you know, this last week have lost a lot of money because they were reckless in where they put their money, and they put money in a bank out in California that was not a good place, although others were telling them about it. It's good, it's good, it's good, but it wasn't government-insured investment, and a lot of people lost a lot of money. Well, that wasn't a wise investment, and there are people who make discernments, wise investments. So you, you make a judgment. The Lord said we are to judge people by their fruit. The Lord said that. I cannot judge whether you sitting here today are all believers. I hope you are. You've said you are. And I'll tell you that I am a believer. Been born again, I believe, by the Holy Spirit of God. But most certainly there are preachers who are deceivers, false preachers, false teachers. With such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do? To judge them that are without. Do you not judge them that are within? For them that are without, God judges. Now rest assuredly, they're not going to escape the judgment of God. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now, that's sufficient for the subject there today. I could go on and talk more about the Lord's Supper, the prerequisites and requirements to take the Lord's Supper. I hope that we here are individually, personally ready to observe the Lord's Supper when we observe it in April. Now, back to Second Peter chapter 2. Verse 14, 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery. Now, that brings up a very unpleasant subject. Eyes full of adultery. We need to be mindful that there are, there is set forth in the New Testament that adultery can be committed inwardly, secretly. People are guilty of committing adultery by lusting in an evil way for another person's body. Eyes full of adultery. That is one of the reasons why we need to be very careful where we go and who we associate with. But it is also very important why that we should dress in a modest way at all times. I hate to bring up the terrible subject of what's going to be going on during this spring break down at all the beaches. I've seen it as an eyewitness from afar because I used to live in Daytona Beach, Florida. And you couldn't hardly avoid seeing people walking around in less clothing and probably what they sleep in out on the streets publicly. Certainly, God's people need to be manifested that they are living the kind of lives and they are related to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. By their, not only by their talk, but by their 
physical appearance. What know you not, Paul will tell you in the 6th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that your bodies, your bodies are a temple of the Holy Ghost. And to abuse your body or to display your body in an improper way, improper way, unsafe way, is a violation of the Word of God. A violation of the Word of God. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. You can read and hear all the time these people who want to show off their bodies and display their bodies, they're saying, I'm proud of my body. And that's what it's all about. And it's about attracting sinful lust. Well, I'm going to go on. I don't want to get on that subject. Eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. They're obsessed. Depraved hearts are obsessed. You know it's TV and everything else today. You cannot hardly buy toothpaste without sexual advertisement coming to you. Beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised. Now note the next few words. With covetous practice, cursed children. Oh! Did you read, hear those words? Look at them. As hearts they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Now note the next verse, please. Which have forsaken the right way and gone astray. Now, he's going to give you, by the Holy Spirit of God, he's going to give you a well-known person who enticed the nation of Israel to sin. This person is mentioned three times in the New Testament. He's an infamous word, person. But he had a devastating effect upon the nation of Israel. As results of what he did and had said to the nation of Israel, 20 4,000 people died. One writer has it 23, other 24. Some think it's an error in the copywriters. Following the way of Balaam. You ever hear about Balaam? Well, we're going to look at it in a minute. 22nd chapter of Numbers. The son of Bezor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water. How tragic it is to go to a well that's dry and no water in it. What's it there for? Well, Peter, by the Holy Spirit, likens false preachers, false teachers, false religious organizations as being wells without water. The true and living well is Jesus Christ. And if a minister or a church is not holding forth Jesus Christ as he set forth in the Word of God, they are belittling him or they are 
teaching of false doctrine. Now, on that subject particularly, I was just noticing this past week about the fallacy of modern-day translations. And one of the subtle ways in which the Westcott and Hort Greek text, Westcott and Hort Greek text. Now, the tragedy about that text is that that is a text that m almost all modern-day translations are based upon. Westcott and Hort were two ungodly men who dis put forth a corrupted Greek text that is the means whereby that most Bibles come from. Now, one of the things that they did, and I was reading this article, you can get it on the Internet, one of the things that they did was that many times were in the names of Christ and his terminology in such a way that he was set forth as being preeminent, words were used and titles were taken out of the name of Jesus Christ to belittle him. One of the occasions, and I don't exactly remember the, the verse of Scripture, the reference, but I'll give it to you quickly. I think it was 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. Uh, but I'm, I may be wrong there, but it says the text. Well, let me just look at that for a moment, be sure I try to. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, if we, uh, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Some of the translations, based upon the Greek text, Westcott and Hart, take out the word Christ here in this verse. Well, you say, well, that, you know, what's the big deal about that? They got, they got Jesus in there. Well, the Gnostics, who the book of 1 John was written primarily to rebuke, make a rebuke, who are denying the deity of Jesus Christ as being the only begotten Son of God. They believe that Jesus was the natural person born by Mary and Joseph, having Joseph as his natural father, and that Christ was the divine person that after Jesus was born, having a natural father, a natural marriage, that sometime or another, probably at his baptism, that Christ came into Jesus and he was there with him until they went to the cross. And then suddenly Christ leaves him and Jesus is the one that was buried. Now that's Gnostic doctrine. And so the Westcott and Hort text, erroneously, without any justification, leave out the word Christ. And so a person who is not really, you know, watching it closely, and I have not seen it because I don't use that trans those translations, they would miss Jesus Christ. His blood is what washes us from our sin. Well, we'll go on. First Peter, Second Peter chapter 2. Wells without water, clouds carried with, with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of flesh, through much wantonness, sinfulness. Those that were clean escape from them who live in error. And the next few verses are hard verses to, to interpret and to apply. But I'll just state what my understanding is of it. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For whom a man is overcome of the same, he is brought into bondage. Now that is very clear. 
you see that in the drug industry. May I warn you and pray that we can keep ourselves from the devastating effect of legalized drugs here in Mississippi. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, note that word, and that word means a, a in, an in-depth knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you'll note those titles given to him, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now, the Lord himself said, to whomsoever much is given, much is required. It is very obvious we would apply this same rule in every aspect of social life. People who have more knowledge, who better trained, we expect their conduct to be better, although it's not always true. But people who are adults, we expect them to act like adults and not like children. That's not always true. But that's the principle of life, social order, that unto whomsoever much is given, much is expected of them. And if they don't, we hold them to a more severe judgment. A child picks up a gun, six years old, seven years of age, maybe, and they don't know what it is, the play toy, they think, they, you know, and they pick the thing up and they shoot someone and kill them. Well, it, that's terrible. It's awful. The court will take into consideration that this is a naive child not having much understanding, or if it's a mental case, they don't really understand the consequences of what they're doing. But for an adult man or woman to take a gun and purposely plan shoot someone like the lawyer recently in South Carolina did, the, the court justly will hold them to a most severe judgment. That's a just system. And that's what here is set forth by the Holy Spirit. For a person to go out for what they have been taught and heard renders them liable for much more severe judgment. Now, I don't understand all of that. I'm just telling you what I believe the Bible says. Back in the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew, the Lord speaking said, well, just turn there with me for a moment, if you would, please. The 11th chapter of Matthew, he's talking about some cities in verse 20, the 11th chapter of Matthew. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Now, you know, people are deceived. And people think because somebody can work some kind of miracle, allegedly work some kind of miracle, and I don't deny that there are some miracles done because the devil has miracle work and power. Note that. He does have miracle work, miracle work and power. If you remember, you're reading the book of Exodus when Moses and Aaron went in and Aaron threw down his rod and it became a serpent. Then the magicians did the same thing and they threw down their rods and they became serpents also. How did that happen? Demonic power. But, of course, Aaron's rod, Aaron's snake consumed those other snakes, but superior power then. But here's what miracles do not produce repentance, genuine repentance. Genuine repentance, Brother David made reference to repentance a while ago, you cannot generate repentance. God must grant repentance. God works repentance in a regenerated heart. You can't repent until you've been regenerated. Until God gives you a new nature, can you repent? 
But if you have a new nature, no one's going to have to make you repent. You will willingly repent because of the effect of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life. But there was no repentance in these cities, though there were many mighty works. And the Lord said to them, Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe unto you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. ashes. But I say unto you, now here's the verse, but I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Now, as I said, I don't know, understand all about these things, what I mean, you know, how God works this out, but he says it, and I believe it's going to happen. I believe it exactly. I believe that religious, that people living in America, where we have churches almost on every corner, every block, where we have preachers on TV and radio and have for ages, where we have so much religious activity going on, where we have, denomin- have religious orders worldwide coming into America, and any kind of religious order you want, you can find it somewhere here in America. Sad to say. But it's part of our inheritance. We have religious liberty. But for anyone to go through life and die without Jesus Christ from America, I cannot help but believe God holds that person to a more severe judgment than someone who's reared in the headwaters of the Amazon River and never seen a Bible. Americans are ripe under judgment. The cup of iniquity for America is filling up. Financially, socially, and religious-wise, we deserve God's severe judgment. It, it, it breaks my heart to see our country going the way that it's going. I'm an old man. I expect to be out of here in the next ten minutes. Maybe the next ten years. But that's God's deal. But it's babies, young people, young adults. I don't know when it's going to happen. Already, though, I just noticed an analysis of our economical system in America from a very astute scholar, a former head of CEO of Amazon, I believe it was, said, recession has already begun in America. We go to the grocery stores, it costs us almost twice as much at a grocery store to buy the same amount of my wife will always say, I paid such and such for this. A few months ago, I paid this much for it. But that's not, the, that's not the worst part of it. It is that our economical system for the government, for our country. Senator from West Virginia, I don't always agree with him, even though he's from my home state. But he's got enough brains, enough sense to realize, and he said this to Mr. Biden and to the Democrat Party, you cannot keep on spending 
and solve inflation. And that's what we're doing. Well, but America is really on the verge of terrible social, political, economical collapse. Only, only by God's mercy will we be spared. And I hope and pray it happens. But unto whomsoever much is given, much is required. Back to Second Peter. For whom, for if they had, for if after they escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again over entangled therein and, and overcome, the latter end is worse than the beginning. The Lord himself talked about a man in whom seven and, and demons was cast out, but it was not a genuine work of, a, of God. It was a false work, and the Lord said, Seven more demons came back worse than the beginning. It's a terrible thing to hear truth. It's an awesome thing. You sitting here, myself included, we are accountable more to God than people who never heard the doctrines and teachings that this church stands for. I cannot go back to where I was. Good people. believe Christian people, I believe. I cannot go back to their orders. I cannot go back to their practices because God has blessed me to see more. And I understand the accountability that's held to those to whom much is given. I believe that the doctrine of universal church is false. I could not be affiliated with any group that holds the universal church. I believe the doctrine of universal atonement it's false doctrine. I could not be affiliated with a group that believes in free will, free willism. There are things that God holds us responsible to because of what we have heard and been taught by the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 21. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of, honor, no way of righteousness then after they had known it, turn from the Holy Commandment, delivered unto them. I read that verse with much grief. Friends and family members who've heard and who've, makes, who've made some kind of acknowledgement to the truth of the matter, and now, where are they? I'm not angry at them. I grieve for them. Some that I've baptized. Where are they? Close friends. Where are they? Here's a sad verse happened unto them according to the true proverb. The dog is turned to his own vomit again. God's people are never called dogs. And the sow that was washed to our walling in the mire. 
I pray God will keep all of us close to here. Now, <clears throat> next few minutes then, I want to talk about this sin of covetousness. In the Numbers, the 22nd chapter, I'll have to tell the story to you to save some time here this morning. You'll read about a man by the name of Balaam. Israel was coming out of the land of Egypt, and they had defeated several other adversaries, Moab being one of them. There was a large, at least a, thousand, a million people. And they had had several army, several battles and had won them all, destroyed, destroyed nations, killing everybody. And so they come up here to the land of Midian, close by to Moab, and the king of Midian at that time, let me just get his, be sure I give his name just exactly to you, Balak, chapter 22. Israel bowled at Chittim. The people began, no, I'm sorry, verse 22, chapter 22 is where I want to be, not chapter 25. Good thing I turned. And the children of Israel set forth, forward and pitched there in the plains of Moab on this side, it's the western side of, of Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. That's the king of Mennonites. And so he's got a problem. He knows his military strength is not sufficient to defeat the Israelites. And so he cares about this man by the name of Balaam, who was some kind of a prophet or had worked miracles, false prophet. And so he sends his men down, some, wit some elders down. You go to Balak. And you, Balaam, and you tell him that the king wants him to come up and to curse the nation of Israel, and I'll give him anything that he wants. Well, they go down there the first time, and Balak tells him, well, I can't do anything unless God gives me right to do it. He, he was that wise. And he said, whatever I say is have to be whatever God gives me to say. I can't do this on my own. He may have been hedging against what he was about to do. I don't know. And so they go back and tell the king, and the king sends more down, and finally they talk to Balak, ask him to go up. Well, God tells him, you go on up. God had already told him, first of all, you can't go up. Don't go up with these men. But then after Balak, Balaam insisted, talk with God, i got to go in and talk to God about this thing. God said, you go ahead and go. But you'll read that God was angry with him because he went. Now, how do you understand that? Well, sometimes God gives you things that you ask for to teach you a lesson. You've done your children that way, and God does us that way, and God has done me that way sometimes. You pray and ask God for something, and he said, okay, I told you once, don't, no, don't do that, or I need to teach you a lesson. Stay away from that. Well, you get your hands burned and get a paddling behind from the Lord and you say, I don't do that again. Well, that's maybe what God was doing. But God was angry with him. And in the way up to Samaria, they meet, he's riding on his ass, and along the way, the ass sees an angel standing in the path, the road, with a sword drawn. 
And the sword, the ass turns aside and Balaam gets angry with the ass and beats the ass for, for turning aside. Well, they get back on the road again and it happens a second time. And they get, go through the same thing. Third time, the angel of the Lord is standing in a very narrow path, wall between two buildings. And the, the ass sees the angel standing there with a the sword drawn, and he goes to the side so much that it crushes the foot of Balaam. And he beats the ass, and while he beats the ass, the ass begins to talk to him. <laughs> now that's something. <clears throat> I'll leave off any side remarks about that. But anyway, and the ass says to him, I'm your faithful ass. I've been with you for several years, been good to you, faithful. Why are you beating me? And he tells the ass, you know, da da. Then the angel of the Lord tells him, speaks up, and says, I had a sword drawn. Why are you beating your ass? I had a sword drawn. I was going to slay you because you were where you were going. Well, make the long story short, he goes up finally, gets there with King Balak, and the king takes him out and shows him this great crowd of multitude of people, the Israelites, and says, I want you to curse them. And he says, I can't curse them unless God gives me right to curse them, unless God authorizes me to do it. And he said, well, I want you to go in. And they go through a ritual and sacrifices are made and so on and so forth, and nothing works. And when you come to the 25th chapter of Numbers, Balaam goes back home, Balak, the king, goes his way. The Balak, is the king, is mad and angry with, with Balaam. I, I offer to give you anything, and you, you won't curse me. But he did something. He gave some counsel. Balak, the king. You'll read in the 20, 31st chapter of, of Numbers that Moses tells Israel what happened. They have killed, put to death, 23,000 people as results of what Balaam told Balak to do. What they did, they enticed the Israelite men to marry, take wives of the Moabites, Midianites. And they began to sacrifice and to worship the pagan idols. Here's what Balaam did. Balaam said, you're not going to destroy them, whom God has blessed. But here's what you can do, and I'm just paraphrasing. You can get God's judgment to come upon them by getting them to do things that He has forbidden them to do. What was that? That was to lose their separation from the world. Now, why did, Balak, why did Balaam do that? Why did he do that? Well, the Bible will tell you here in verse 31 of num chapter 31 and verse 15 of Numbers. Behold, these cause 
the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. That's what happened. Now, the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Reference is made to this. And Paul tells us something in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul will tell you in verse 13, he, and he lists in chapter 10, he tells about a lot of things happening to Israel. He says, all were baptized on the Moses in the cloud and in the sea, but all and all did eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink from the rock. But many of them, with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now you know all about what happened. You have that record given to you in the Old Testament. It's important for us to read it and to understand what happened and this is the reason why. The, 15th, the 13th verse of this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Well, let me read verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. Examples. To learn. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Hey, we're talking about people in the Christians of 20th century, 21st century, 2023. Ends the world. If the world goes on for another billion years, it's for them. This is never outdated. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. All things happen for their, for examples. They are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Written for warning. Now, Peter here talks about Balaam. And he says, who have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam. Balaam is mentioned over in the book of Jude, 11th verse. The book of Peter, the book of Second Peter, and the book of Jude, almost are parallels. In verse eleven, woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. Now note the what it is: the error of Balaam for reward. Oh, what reward? Reward that the king promised him. He got paid off. That's the way of wages of unrighteousness. He compromised in order to get a reward. The world wants to destroy the Lord's churches. The devil wants to destroy your witness and your testimony. The devil would like to take away from you your salvation. He can't do that. But what he can do, if the salt should lose its savior, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. Your testimony, your godly witness, can be so damaged by sin and the devil 
that you lose your fellowship with the Lord, and not only your fellowship with the Lord, but your witness to the world that you live in. Well, you say, well, I don't care about that. Well, then you're not a child of God. If you don't care about your witness, your testimony, your fellowship with the Lord, you're not a child of God. I'm married to a woman that I love very much. We've been married 63 years. I'm very careful and have been all my married life how I conduct myself around, away from home. I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm unfaithful to my wife. I have made it a policy all through my married life to try and always be nowhere where there's not another person, where there's other women around. That's because I love that woman. I guard my witness and my testimony. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you love your testimony and your witness, not in order to merit your salvation, but you want people to know assuredly that you are a child of God. That's what baptism is the initial step about. I die out to the old world, and I've come alive to a new life. And I'm living now not according to my own carnal nature, but I'm living now according to the spiritual nature. Yes, there's warfare and conflict that goes on inwardly, but I want to draw closer and closer to the Lord rather than drawing closer to the world. If that doesn't bother you, you've got a spiritual problem. Being honest with you. I know what it's like to be out of fellowship with the Lord. <laughs> More than I want to admit. I know that he that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he also fall. Now, what is the sin of Balaam? It is covetousness. 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 Now the Lord warns you about it. Warns us about it. Now what is it? Well, the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, his ox, or his ass, or his house. What that is saying, thou shalt not covet anything that he has. Now, covetousness is a hard thing to regulate. It's like being ambitious. Nothing wrong with wanting to make a better, have a better lifestyle, make more money, provide for my family, da-da-da-da-da, better house, da-da-da-da-da-da. Nothing wrong with those things as long as it is within the framework of submission to the Lord. But if your ambition takes domination over your fellowship with the Lord and your Christian life, you've got a problem. I've got a problem. If I allow my ambition to dictate my lifestyle and I put the Lord secondary in my life, I've got a problem with covetousness. It's called idolatry also. Because the God of my life has suddenly become something else. A car, a house, a, per a woman or a man, it's become something else. That's not the God of my life. I mean, that's not to be the God of my life. 
we have violated the first commandment. Fact of the matter is, I was reading one author was talking about this subject and pointed out, and I was not so much aware of this, but how that covetousness leads to other sins. I'm covetous. It may be immorality. It may be lying, murder, dishonesty, various things that are brought in, motivated by a covetous heart. That's serious. God makes it to be serious. In all thy ways acknowledge the Lord, Proverbs says. And the Lord said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what the Lord says. In other words, the main heart thing of my heart is to be the Lord first. My life, everything that I do is surrendered to the Lord first. My family, yes, but my Lord first. My job, yes, but the Lord first. Or else I'm out of order, priority. It's personal. It's hard to define. Just because you've got a new car doesn't mean that you're guilty of being covetous. Or No. Just because you buy a new house, got to take a better job. No, that's not it. To be covetous, Right, as long as it is proper. You say, what do you mean? Well, the Bible, Paul says, covet the best gift. That is, to prophesy, speak. Charity, love. Covet the best gifts. There are things that God puts in our life at times, allows to come into our life, to put a trial before us, to examine yourself by. I know, I've been there. Abraham, God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, and kill him. Now, God wasn't playing games. There was a reason, a purpose for it. Which one do you love the most? Me? Or your son. <laughs> That's a hard issue, Lord. Only got one born by Sarah. What if it means that you are to lose everything? There are people who are having to give up their jobs because of their love for the Lord and their, and their desire to be faithful to the Word of God. They won't compromise their convictions. And that's what the devil tries to get people to do to compromise your convictions for what you can gain or what you stand potentially to lose. I'll lose my business if I do that. Or a church, we'll lose some church members if we hold to that doctrine. The most important thing we can do is get a crowd in, but you don't want to run them all, preacher. A church in Jacksonville, Florida, one of the largest churches in Jacksonville, Florida, took a stand about 
same-sex marriage, and they lost a lot of members. But they were faithful to the Lord. You see, the reason why this is hard to deal with is because it's hard to define what is and what ain't. What is proper and what isn't proper. But it's a warning. Look up the word in your dictionary. In your, your dictionary. Well, in the dictionary. Look it up in the Bible. Look at the concordance. Look at the context that's set in it. It's in the context with many other bad sins and with even idolatry. It's mentioned twice in these two, in this chapter that I just read. But let me take you to the last place quickly. But in the third chapter, no, second chapter of Revelation, the church at Pergamos. You have some there that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. The church, New Testament church. You've got some in your midst that's holding to the doctrine of Balaam. What is it? It is that we must compromise with the world in order to get success and get ahead. And that's what's going on throughout America. I mean, bless their hearts, you can go into almost any Southern Baptist church and they've all got the same auditorium now. Taking out pews, they're putting in folding chairs. They've got a big drop-down screen, and they're singing not out of hymn books, but they're singing off of a screen. And they've got a band up front going. I mean, the, some of the smallest country churches, if they can do it, they're going to do it. And all of them have got a gymnasium round back or on the side. Why? Is it order that we can attract the world to us? And the world has come in. That's the sad thing. But it's not the world of being regenerated and being brought to the truth of God, but it is the world of compromise in order that we can keep them here. I was talking to an, another preacher this just past week, and one of the things that we have to learn is the same bait that you attract the fish with is what you've got to keep using to keep them there. Whatever you use to attract people in with is what it is that you have to keep on going with. Compromise. Personally, church-wise. When we become more concerned about success and growing or promoting, whether it's myself personally, are we as a church, we're guilty of being covetous of what the world can do for us. Number 331 in your hymn books, please. 331. Let's stand while we sing. I trust that this is our testimony. Number 331. 